You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. God of heaven, we praise you for saving us in Jesus for the world to come. Teach us to live for that world and may we be a model of your master plan for all things in Jesus. Amen. Well, as we arrive at the end of 1 Timothy, we read Paul's final words to his true son in the faith. At least his final words in this letter. And I wonder if it's a bit like a parent's email advice to his son who's far away. What do you think he might write? What advice do you think this father in the faith might have for his son? As I said in one sense, he's almost like that parent who emails their child who's moved into state for university. So, imagine with me here. You open the email in your inbox, and this is what it reads. Dear James, eat well, study hard, and don't have too much fun. Don't get distracted by gaming or clubs. No, they might be fun in the short term, but in the long run, you'll end up with not much money and a lot of regret. No, fix your eyes on the future. Focus on getting a job. Find a godly wife. Settle down. Sacrifice your short-term pleasures for your long-term gains. Now, your mother and I were worried sick about you. So, we want to let you know, you may need to pass on that road trip, spend less money on computer parts, or or even work a few fewer hours now so that you can have more time to study. Because the more time you study now, the the better your future job prospects will be. So, don't be short-sighted to earn small change today if that means trading off a bigger profit tomorrow. James, don't live for the moment. Live for your future. Love, Dad. Now, I think Paul's message is not exactly the same, but it's somewhat similar. You see, he's urging Timothy and all the Christians in Ephesus, don't live for the moment. Live for the future. Don't be distracted by short-term pleasures of this world. No, live for the long-term gains of the world to come. Live. For the world to come. You see, Paul is summoning Timothy to believe in the world to come, to take hold of the world to come, and to hope in the world to come. So let's see them in part number one, believe in the world to come. Do you remember what's happening here at the church in Ephesus? False teachers, they're running amok. They're spreading a false gospel that has nothing to do with the gospel. And so, in chapter 1, Paul charges Timothy, instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. Or in verse 18, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Well, now here in chapter 6, he comes full circle. Teach and encourage these things. Verse 12, there it is. Fight the good fight. You see, this letter is bracketed, it's bookended by Timothy's great commission. 
Only the gospel, only this gospel that is preaching can create the godly family that God desires. Chapter 1 verse 5, now the goal of our instruction is love. That comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, if the gospel creates godliness, then a false gospel will breed godlessness, won't it? Which is what we find once again bracketed. Chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. Envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions and on and on it goes. I don't know if you've seen the movie Crazy Rich Asians. It's not a great movie, but it's got a bit of novelty factor, doesn't it? Now, in that movie, there's a scene there that I'll never forget. It's a scene uh, where crazy rich aunties are holding, ironically, a Bible study. And I wonder, do you know what passage they're studying? Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Here it is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It's painfully ironic, isn't it? Here are a group of crazy rich aunties surrounded by wealth, and yet they're studying the Bible that tells them, no, set your sights, your hopes on a far greater future. Live for another world. We're supposed to see that scene and think, oh my gosh, how hypocritical. But actually, it highlights a hypocrisy in so many of our own hearts, doesn't it? And it highlights a hypocrisy of the false teachers here in Ephesus. But you notice at the end of verse 5, this is their problem. They imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. So just like those crazy rich aunties in Singapore, no, these false teachers, they had figured out a way to gain the gospel for their greed. They had made God not into a golden calf, but into a cash cow. So they pray so that they might profit. They give money so that God might give back to them even more. Their so-called godliness is actually godless greed. So what Paul now does is he, he does almost what you'd expect when you see that famous scene from Crocodile Dundee. That's not a knife. That's a knife. Well, Paul's saying that's not godliness. This is godliness. Verses 6 and 7, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Friends, can you see what Paul is doing? He's reframing reality in light of eternity. He's echoing the wisdom of Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. True godliness believes in the world to come. It believes that this world is but the forward to the eternal story of God. I mean, how tragic would it be to be so short-sighted, to assume that this world is it, and amass our wealth today, only to lose it all in the end? No, true godliness believes in the world to come, that the best is yet to come. And so, verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. I mean, what freedom? I wonder, as you read verse 8, can you actually say verse 8 and mean it? 
I might not have all I want, but I have all I need. If you're not a Christian, let me ask, are you content? Are you content? Or do you find yourself always chasing the next experience, the next holiday, the next adventure? After all, they say you only live once, so travel the world. Hike Mount Fuji, chase the southern lights. Because this life is all you've got. But not if you trust in Jesus. No, not if you believe that there's a world to come. Because if you do, you'll enjoy godly contentment. What, is, what does it mean to be content? What does it mean to be content? Well, here it is. Contentment is the freedom of knowing that we don't have to enjoy everything in this world. Because in the world to come, we get it all. Let me say that again. Contentment is the freedom of knowing that we don't have to enjoy everything in this world. Because we know that in the world to come, we get it all. The gospel of God produces contentment in Christ. And if the gospel leads to godliness, you'd assume, right, that a false gospel leads to godlessness. And it does. It does. But in verses 9 and 10, we actually see that it works the other way around. It's not just that, you know, a false gospel leads to godlessness. Godlessness actually leads to a false gospel. You know, I've often wondered to myself, what must it like to be a false teacher? Don't worry, I'm not flirting with any thoughts, but just like, what, are the, what goes through their minds? What motivates someone to promote a lie? Well, there it is. Right there in verse 10. The love of money. The love of money. You see, we change what we believe to justify how we live. If you want to be rich, if you want to be wealthy, even if you want to be crazy rich, verse 9 is a warning to you. Be very careful. Don't change the gospel to justify your greed. It may not plunge you into financial ruin, but it will cast you into spiritual destruction. You see, if you love money, if you live for money, Paul says you have a weed inside your heart whose roots run deep and will choke your faith. Now, most of us here know the evils of the prosperity gospel, right? Which says that God wants us to be physically healthy and financially wealthy. And I know some of you, when you saw this passage, you're thinking, yes, my gosh, Adam's going to go for the prosperity gospel, but not so quick. And not so easy. See, I wonder whether we attack the prosperity gospel simply to distract from our security gospel. Let me explain. We'll, we'll reject and attack the prosperity gospel, but this is what our security gospel says. Oh, no, of course, God doesn't want me to be crazy rich, but he wants me to be comfortable. He doesn't want me to be a multi-millionaire with a private jet like Creflo Dollar. No, he wants me just, I mean, to be a millionaire with a nice house or two and the investment one by the side. God doesn't want me to, finan he, God doesn't want me to be financially wealthy, but I, I mean, I should be wise, right? 
whatever that means. Now, I'm not saying don't be financially wise. I'm just asking what you mean when you say financially wise. Is our security gospel really just a respectable version of the prosperity gospel? Are we changing our gospel to justify our greed? Diminishing the cross to exalt our comfort? Downplaying the demands of our discipleship to justify a life of security? So let me ask, right? When we read Jesus' words to the rich young ruler, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, what's your first reaction? What's your first reaction? Is it, well, well I mean, he didn't really mean that. Or do we allow ourselves to feel the force of what he's actually saying? You see, in our security gospel, are we still living for this world only? What world does it show that we really believe in and that we really live for? Paul is writing to Timothy. Remember that there's a life beyond uni. Remember that there's a world beyond this. Believe in the world to come. So imagine for a moment, you read further down that email. And this is what the email says. Young James, remember there's a life beyond uni. Seize it. Take hold of it. Don't wait. Be ambitious. Boy, don't waste your life. Don't waste. It's great parental advice, isn't it? And that's the advice that Paul now gives to Timothy. Look at there. It's right there in verse 11. But you... Man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Wouldn't you feel great if you were opening that email? Oh, man of God. Young James, you're a man of God. Well, wouldn't you love to be called that? Be a man. Step up and do the right thing. What does that mean? Run away from godliness from greed, from sin, and run towards godliness, love, and righteousness. Run away from the values of this world and run towards the values of the world to come. Run away from the life out of which Jesus has saved you and run towards the life which Jesus has won for you. Now, all that takes effort. It takes determination. It takes hard work. Yes, God has saved us in Jesus by grace alone. Nothing in our hands we bring, we contribute not a shred of good works to it. Not a piece of our effort could ever earn our salvation. Yes, it's true that God gives us the strength by His Spirit to live for Him. But He still calls us to pursue, to fight, and to sacrifice for the world to come. Now, over the last few months... I know I'm going to regret telling you this, but over the last few months, I've decided to stay fit. I will take up running. So, I'll tell you what, when I'm running downhill, I love it. I've never felt faster or fitter. But, every run, without fail, I arrive at Surrey Road in Mount Waverley. Surrey Road in Mount Waverley. Friends, I hate Surrey Road. If you're thinking about the steepest hills, there's Mount Everest, and then there's Surrey Road. And but running up that hill, it takes endurance, perseverance, and resolve, none of which I've ever displayed in my run. 
But, but as you reach the top, as you arrive at your destination for all the strain, for all the sweat, you think to yourself, it's worth it. Verse 12, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. T take hold of the world to come. The world which you've been promised in the Lord Jesus Christ. The prize is already yours. The victory already won. The crown already secured. So, run. Run your guts out. Go and get it. Some of you have asked me before, Adam, is it bad to have ambition? Is it bad to have ambition? Well, read 1 Timothy 6. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. I mean, that's ambition writ large. Is it bad to have ambition? Not at all. But just be ambitious for all the right things. You see, I want you to know that if your ambition in this life is to be rich, to be comfortable, to be secure, to be successful, dream a little bigger. Your ambition is far too small because your ambition is limited by this world only. So many of us, we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of our ambition, aren't we? We sacrifice time, sleep, or even our friends and family in order to take hold of our careers and seize our futures. Well, Paul is calling us to sacrifice, to do just that, but for an even greater ambition an ambition for the world to come. Sacrifice your career. Sacrifice your wealth. Sacrifice your success in order to take hold of that which is truly worth it and that which truly lasts. Seize your eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take hold of the world to come. Well, how might we do that? How might we do that? Three steps. Firstly, Look back. Look back. Look back on your conversion. Look back on your baptism in verse 12. The day on which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The day on which you confessed, just like Jesus did before Pontius Pilate, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus came in the into the world to save sinners that he died to save us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Look back. For some of you, that will mean looking back to last year, the day on which you were baptized. For some of you, the day Easter Sunday last year, the day on which it all landed and you put your trust in Jesus. Look back. Number two, look up, look up. Look up to the God in whose presence you stand. The God who in verse 13 gives life to all. And as you stand before that God, resolve as to how you might live for that God. Look back. Look up. And thirdly, look forward. Look forward to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day on which history will come to an end. The day on which eternity will truly begin. And the new world will be ours to enjoy. Three questions for three looks. Look back and ask, how will I use this life that Jesus has won for me? Look up and ask, how will I live this life 
for the pleasure of my God. Look forward and ask, will I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? What will you do? For Timothy, Paul is coming full circle and is calling him to commit himself, to recommit himself to gospel ministry. Just as he called him to preach the word in chapter 1, he's once again summoning him to preach the word here in chapter 6. And God is calling some of you here in our church family to do exactly the same. To commit your life to exactly the same task. I mean, my gosh, what better way to spend your money and spend your life than to commit it all for the cause of the gospel? Let me get really practical. Why not set aside two years to train for gospel ministry here at Cross and Crown to discern whether this is what God might have for you? I mean, think about it, right? Wouldn't it be absolutely amazing if we got 1 Timothy 6 really into our bones? Wouldn't it be amazing if our church could raise up people with this sort of ambition? Just imagine, one of us, one of you, hears this word today. And in response to this call, resolves to take the gospel to a closed country and die for the sake of Christ. I mean, we'll be sad, but what a way to go! What a way to go! What a way to show that we live for the world to come! What a way to take hold of the world to come! What a way to show that it's worth it. It's worth it. Because we live for the eternal God. We live for the eternal God. I mean, just pause for a moment and feel the otherworldly majesty of the God who is calling you to serve him. This God, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal power. Amen. I mean, how can we not live for a God like that? How can we not live for a God of the world to come? Believe in the world to come. Take hold of the world to come. And finally, hope in the world to come. Hope in the world to come. I want you guys to visualize for a moment for all of you who can drive. If you can't, just imagine that you're in the passenger seat of your friend who's driving. That you're driving across the Balti Bridge. Now, I wonder, you would probably know what this is. If you don't know the name, you'll at least know the site. It's that bridge in Melbourne to the western suburbs with two great concrete towers on either side. Do you know that bridge? Have you seen it? Now, each of those towers is about 90 meters tall from the river all the way to the top, 90 meters tall. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment putting on the top of one of those towers a postage stamp, wafer-thin postage stamp, glue side up. Now, think about that tower and postage stamp as representing the whole world's wealth, the poorest at the bottom and the richest at the top. So let's climb our way up the tower. If you come 
up halfway up the tower, about to road level where the cars cross on the bridge, you will reach the average wealth of all humanity. That's about $5,300. In wealth, not income, total wealth, $5,300 is the average wealth of all humanity, of each person in humanity. If you keep going up the tower, the average Australian family earns about $325,000 or has about that in net wealth. If you're the average Australian family, you will be within an inch or two of the top of that concrete tower. Keep going. If you have at least $750,000 in net wealth, including the equity in your house, you are in the top 10% of all Australians. And you are represented by the thickness of the paper on the postage stamp on top of the concrete tower. Oh, we're not done yet. If your household wealth is north of $1.25 million, including the equity in your house, dear friend, you are represented by the thickness of the glue on the postage stamp on the 90 meter concrete tower. All that to say, all of us, by any measure, are remarkably wealthy. So when we read chapter 6, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in the present age, that's us. That's us. And Paul is warning us, don't be arrogant and think that you earned, it all, earned all this by your hard work. No, it's God who richly provides. And don't set your hope on the uncertainty of wealth because either it will leave you one day, or I can guarantee you will leave it. And hasn't this global pandemic shown us the uncertainty of our wealth? According to the IMF, the global economy will shrink by 3% this year. PwC reports that Australia will experience a $34.2 billion reduction in GDP. Unemployment levels will reach 10%. And the projected budget surplus of $7.1 billion is now a $100 billion deficit. I mean, no one could have seen that coming. No one. Paul says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of wealth. I know that some of you have been working remarkably hard for graduate jobs that now you're not quite sure whether they'll even exist. You're afraid that corporate hiring freezes will kick in, which means that, oh my gosh, the future I once mapped out might look very different. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen. Let's pray that it doesn't. But simply changing career direction or choosing a different industry is not the solution to our problems. We don't need to change where we direct our careers. No, we need to change where we set our hope. We need to hope in the world to come. And when we do, we'll be truly rich in this world. We'll be rich in good works. We'll be free to be generous and willing to share. Because we know that whatever riches we may or may not have in this world, in the end, we get it all. Nothing can take away the infinite riches and spiritual blessings we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption, forgiveness, adoption, salvation and a new world to come. Brothers and sisters, these blessings are far more precious than gold. And here's the best part. 
When we hope in the world to come, verse 19 ends with what have to be one of the most beautiful words in which you could come to the end of a book. We will take hold of what is truly life. What is truly life? We will live as we were truly meant to live. With generosity, good works, and godliness. I understand that in this time of job losses, pay cuts and hiring freezes, some of you might need to reduce your giving to church and gospel ministry. And that's okay. We don't want you to feel guilty about that. But others of us might be less affected and we're actually in a position to respond with generosity. And if that's you, I wonder, at a time when everyone is saving more for themselves, might we spend more not on ourselves but for the sake of others? When the temptation to greed is so great, might we instead be driven to generosity? When everyone is living for this world only, might we show the world that we live for the world to come? Martin Luther writes this, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse or the wallet. Why? Well, God don't need your money if you haven't noticed. He created the world. It's all his anyway. But how we spend our money reflects where we set our hope. How we spend our money reflects where we set our hope. And I wonder, Based on that measure, where are you setting your hope? Does your budget reflect the world to come? As we arrive at the end of 1 Timothy, we've seen what God wants us to be. We've seen what kind of family God wants us to be. We've seen what kind of church family and household God wants cross and crown to be. What a strange year we're in in 2020. But I'm asking all of you who are committed members and regulars of this church, whether you will join me in making our church reflect the church that we find here in 1 Timothy, whether you might join together and step up and share in those one another's of scripture as we make our church a model of God's master plan for the world to come, that our friends might look at our church and go, wow, there's something so otherworldly about you guys. Why is it that you guys look so much like God? Chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. So friends, here are some aspirations for us this year. Possibly aspirations for the rest of our existence as a church. Will we be a family built on gospel truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Will we be a family for all people because God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? Will we be a family designed by God with men and women in this beautiful harmony of sacrifice and submission? Will we be a family led in godliness by elders and deacons who are above reproach? Will we be a family trained in godliness because the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way?
Will we be a family for the most vulnerable? Because those without a family put their hope in God. Will we be a family of godly honour? Because good leaders breed godly families. And will we be a family for the world to come? Because God has saved us in Jesus for another world. Will you respond to God's grace with a heart of gratitude? Not just in your individual life, but in our church life together. Let me ask of all those questions, of all those commitments, what's one commitment that you can make in response to God's vision of the church here in 1 Timothy? Just look at that list. What's one thing that you can commit to doing this year? What's one way in which you can commit to serving our church family? Let me ask, will you join us as we make this church family a model of God's master plan in Jesus Christ? Let me pray. God of heaven, we praise you for saving us in Jesus for the world to come. Teach us to live for that world. And may we be a model of your master plan for all things in Jesus. Amen.